Section 1 of Now It Can Be Told. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Walt Allen. Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. Section 1, Part 1, Observers and Commanders. Preface in Chapters 1 to 5. Preface. In this book I have written some aspects of the war, which I believe the world must know and remember, not only as a memorial of men's courage in tragic years, but as a warning of what will happen again, surely, if a heritage of evil and folly is not cut out of the hearts of peoples. Here it is the reality of modern warfare, not only as it appears to British soldiers of whom I can tell, but to soldiers on all fronts, where conditions were the same. What I have written here does not cancel, nor alter, nor deny anything in my daily narratives of events on the Western Front as they are now published in book form. They stand, I may claim sincerely and humbly, as a truthful, accurate, and tragic record of the battles in France and Belgium during the years of war, broadly pictured out as far as I could see and know. My duty, then, was that of a chronicler, not arguing why things should have happened so nor giving reasons why they should not have happened so, but describing faithfully many of the things I saw, and narrating the facts as I found them as far as the censorship would allow. After early hostile days it allowed nearly all but criticism, protest, and of the figures of loss. The purpose of this book is to get deeper into the truth of this war and of all war, not by a more detailed narrative of events, but rather as the truth was revealed to the minds of men in many aspects out of their experience and by a plain statement of realities however painful to add something to the world's knowledge out of which men of good will may try to shape some new system of relationship between one people and another some new code of international morality preventing or at least postponing another massacre of youth like that five years sacrifice of boys of which i was a witness Part One, Observers and Commanders Chapter One When Germany threw down her challenge to Russia and France, and England knew that her imperial power would be one of the prizes of German victory, the common people did not think this at first, but saw only the outrage to Belgium, a brutal attack on civilization, and a glorious adventure, some newspaper correspondents were sent out from London to report the proceedings, and I was one of them. We went in civilian clothes, without military passports. The war office was not giving any. With bags of money which might be necessary for the hire of motor cars, hotel life, and the bribery of doorkeepers in the antechambers of war, as some of us had gone to the Balkan War and others. The old guard of war correspondents besieged the war office for official recognition and were insulted day after day by junior staff officers who knew that Kay hated these men and thought the press ought to be throttled in time of war, or they were beguiled into false hopes by officials who hoped to go in charge of them and were told to buy horses and sleeping bags and be ready to start at a moment's notice for the front. The moment's notice was postponed for months. The younger ones did not wait for it. They took their chance of seeing something without authority and made wild, desperate efforts to break through the barrier that had been put up against them by French and British staffs in the zone of war. Some of them were arrested, 
put in a prison, let out, caught again in forbidden places, rearrested, and expelled from France. That was after fantastic adventures in which they saw what war meant in civilized countries, where vast populations were made fugitives of fear, where millions of women and children and old people became wanderers along the roads in a tide of human misery, with the red flame of war behind them and following them, and where the first battalions of youth, so gay in their approach to war, so confident of victory, so careless of the dangers, which they did not know, came back maimed and mangled and blinded and wrecked in the backwash of retreat, which presently became a spate through Belgium and the north of France, swamping over many cities and thousands of villages and many fields. Those young writing men who had set out in a spirit of adventure went back to Fleet Street with a queer look in their eyes, unable to write the things they had seen, unable to tell them to people who had not seen and could not understand, because there was no code of words which would convey the picture of that wild agony of peoples, that smashing of all civilized laws, to men and women who still thought of war in terms of heroic pageantry. Had a good time? asked a colleague along the corridor, hardly waiting for an answer. Good time? God! Did people think it was amusing? to be an onlooker of world tragedy. One of them remembered a lady of France with a small boy who had fled from Charleville, which was in flames and smoke. She was weak with hunger, with dirty and bedraggled skirts on her flight, and she had heard that her husband was in the battle that was now being fought round their own town. She was brave, pointed out the line of German advance on the map, and it was in the troop train crowded with French soldiers, and then burst into wild weeping clasping the hand of an English writing man, so that her nails dug into his flesh. I remember her still. Courage, maman! Courage, petite maman! said the boy of eight. Through Amiens at night had come a French army in retreat. There were dead and wounded in their wagons. Coursiers stumbled as they led their tired horses. Crowds of people with white faces like ghosts in the darkness stared at their men retreating like this through their city, and knew that the enemy was close behind. Nous sommes perdus, cried a woman, and gave a wailing cry. People were fighting their way into the railway trucks at every station for hundreds of miles across northern France. Women were beseeching a place for the sake of their babies. There was no food for them on journeys of nineteen hours or more. They fainted with heat and hunger. An old woman died, and her corpse blocked up the lavatory. At night they slept on the pavements in cities invaded by fugitives. At Fernay in Belgium, and at Dunkirk on the coast of France, there were columns of ambulances bringing in an endless tide of wounded. They were laid out stretcher by stretcher in station yards, five hundred at a time. Some of their faces were masses of clotted blood. Some of their bodies were horribly torn. They breathed with a hard snuffle. A foul smell came from them. At Chartres they were swilling over the station hall with disinfecting fluid after getting through with one day's wounded. The French doctor in charge had received a telegram from the director of medical services. Make ready for forty thousand wounded. It was during the first battle of the Marne. It is impossible, said the French doctor. 
400,000 people were in flight from Antwerp, into which big shells were falling, as English correspondents flattened themselves against the walls and said, God in heaven. 250,000 people coming across the Scheldt in rowing boats, sailing craft, rafts, invaded one village in Holland. They had no food. Children were mad with fright. Young mothers had no milk in their breasts. It was cold at night, and there were only a few canal boats and fishermen's cottages, and in them were crowds of fugitives. The odor of human filth exuded from them, and as I smell it now, and sicken in remembrance. Then Dixemude was in flames, and Pervier, and many other towns, from the Belgian coast to Switzerland. In Dixemude, young boys of France, fusilliers marins, lay dead about the Grande Place. In the town hall, falling to bits under shell-fire, a colonel stood dazed and waiting for death amid the dead bodies of his men. One so young, so handsome, lying there on his back with a waxen face, staring steadily at the sky through a broken roof. In Newport de Bains, one dead soldier lay at the end of the esplanade, and a little group of living were huddled under the wall of a red-brick villa, watching other villas falling like card-houses in a town that had been built for love and pretty women and the lucky people of the world. British monitors lying close into shore were answering the German bombardment, firing over Newport to the dunes by Ostend. From one monitor came a group of figures with white masts of cotton wool tipped with wet blood, British seamen all blind with the dead body of an officer tied up in a sack. O Jesu, O Mama, O Pavra Petite Femme, O Jesu, O Jesu, from thousands of French soldiers lying wounded or parched in the burning sun before the Battle of the Marne, these cries went up in the blue sky of France in August of fourteen. They were the cries of use, agony, and war. Afterward, I went across the fields where they fought and saw their bodies and their graves and the proof of the victory that saved France and us. The German dead had been gathered into heaps like autumn leaves. They were soaked in petrol, and oily smoke was rising from them. That was after the retreat from Mont, and the French retreat all along their line, and the thrust that drew very close to Paris, when I saw our little regular army, the old contemptibles, on their way back, with the German horde following close. Sir John French had his headquarters for the night in Creil. English, Irish, Scottish soldiers, stragglers from units still keeping some kind of order, were coming in, bronzed, dusty, parched with thirst, with light wounds tied round with rags, with blistered feet. French soldiers, bearded, dirty, thirsty as dogs, crowded the station platforms. They, too, had been retreating and retreating. A company of sappers had blown up forty bridges of France. Under a gas lamp, in a foul-smelling urinal, I copied out the diary of their officer. Some spiritual faith upheld these men. Wait, they said. In a few days we shall give them a hard knock. They will never get Paris. Je me délevie. In Beauvais there was hardly a living soul when three English correspondents went there after escape from Amiens, now in German hands. A tall cursier stood by some bags of gunpowder ready to blow up the bridge. The streets were strewn with barbed wire and broken bottles. In Paris there was a great fear and solitude, except where grief-stricken crowds stormed the railway stations for escape, 
and where French and British soldiers, stragglers all, drank together and sang above their broken glasses and cursed the war and the Germans. And down all the roads from the front on every day in every month of that first six months of war, as afterward, came back the tide of wounded, wounded everywhere, maimed men at every junction, hospitals crowded with blind and dying and moaning men. Had an interesting time, asked a man I wanted to kill because of his smug ignorance, his damnable indifference, his impregnable stupidity of cheerfulness in this world of agony. I had changed the clothes which were smeared with blood of French and Belgian soldiers whom I had helped in a week of strange adventure to carry to the surgeons. As an onlooker of war, I hated the people who had not seen, because they could not understand. All these things I had seen in the first nine months I put down in a book called The Soul of War, so that some might know, but it was only a few who understood. CHAPTER Two. In 1915 the War Office at last moved in the matter of war correspondence. Lord Kitchener, prejudiced against them, was being broken down a little by the pressure of public opinion, mentioned from time to time by members of the government, which demanded more news of their men in the field than was given by bald communiques from the general headquarters and by an eyewitness who, as one paper had the audacity to say, wrote nothing but eyewash. Even the enormous impregnable stupidity of our high command on all matters of psychology was penetrated by a vague notion that a few writing fellows might be sent out with permission to follow the armies in the field, under the strictest censorship, in order to silence the popular clamor for more news. Dimly and nervously they apprehended that in order to stimulate the recruiting of the new army now being called to the colors by vulgar appeals to sentiment and passion, it might be well to write up the glorious side of war as it could be seen at the base and in the organization of transport, without, of course, any allusion to dead or dying men, to the ghastly failures of distinguished generals, or to the filth and horror of the battlefields. They could not understand, nor did they ever understand, these soldiers of the old school, that a nation which was sending all of its sons to the field of honor desired, with a deep and poignant craving, to know how those boys of theirs were living and how they were dying, and what suffering was theirs, and what chances they had against their enemy, and how it was going with the war which was absorbing all the energy and wealth of the people at home. Why don't they trust their leaders? asked the army chiefs. Why don't they leave it to us? We do trust you with some misgivings, thought the people, and we do leave it to you, though you seem to be making a mess of things. But we want to know what we have a right to know, and that is the life and progress of this war in which our men are engaged. We want to know more about their heroism, so that it shall be remembered by their people, and known by the world about their agony so that we may share it in our hearts and about the way of their death so that our grief may be softened by the thought of their courage we will not stand for this anonymous war and you are wasting time by keeping it secret because the imagination of those who have not joined cannot be fired by cold lines which say there is nothing to report on the western front 
In March of 1915, I went out with the first body of accredited war correspondents, and we saw some of the bad places where our men lived and died, and the traffic to the lines, and the mechanism of war in fixed positions as were then established after the Battle of the Marne and the first Battle of Ypres. Even then, it was only an experimental visit. It was not until June of that year, after an adventure on the French front in the Champagne, that I received full credentials as a war correspondent with the British armies on the Western Front, and joined four other men who had been selected for this service, and began that long innings as an authorized onlooker of war, which ended, after long and dreadful years, with the army of occupation beyond the Rhine. Chapter 3 In the very early days we lived in a small old house called by courtesy a chateau in the village of Taddingham near general headquarters at Saint-Omer. Afterward we shifted our quarters from time to time according to the drift of battle and our convenience. It was very peaceful there amid fields of standing corn where peasant women worked while their men were fighting, but in the motor cars supplied us by the army with military drivers all complete. It was a quick ride over Castle Hill to the edge of the Ypres salient, and the farthest point where any car could go without being seen by a watchful enemy and blown to bits at the signal to the guns. Then we walked up sinister roads, or along communication trenches, to the fire-step in the front line, or into places like Plug Street Wood, and Kemmel Village, and the ruins of Vermeille, and the lines by Neuve-Chapelle the training schools of british armies where always birds of death were on the wing screaming with high and rising notes before coming to earth with the cough that killed after hours in those hiding places where boys of the new army were learning the lessons of war in dugouts and ditches under the range of german guns back again to the little white chateau at tanningham with the sweet scent of flowers from the fields and the nightingales singing in the woods and a bell tinkling for benediction in the old church tower beyond our gate. Tomorrow, said the colonel, our first chief, before driving in for a late visit to the GHQ, we will go to Amelterez and see how the Kitchener boys are shaping up in the line up there. It ought to be interesting. The colonel was profoundly interested in the technique of war, in its organization of supplies and transport and methods of command. He was a regular of the Indian Army, a soldier by blood and caste and training, and the noblest type of the old school of imperial officer, with obedience to command as a religious instinct, of stainless honor, I think, in small things as well as great, and a deep love of England, and a belief and pride in her imperial destiny to govern many peoples for their own good, and with the narrowness of such belief. His imagination was limited to the boundaries of his professional interests, though now and then his humanity made him realize in a perplexed way greater issues at stake in this war than the challenge to the British empery. One day, when we were walking through the desolation of a battlefield, with the smell of human corruption about us, and men crouched in chalky ditches below their breastworks of sandbags, he turned to a colleague of mine and said in a startled way, this must never happen again never it will never happen again for him as for many others 
He was too tall for the trenches, and one day a German sniper saw the red glint of his hatband. He was on the staff of the 11th Corps, and thought, A gay bird! And so he fell, and in our mess, when the news came, we were sad at his going, and one of our orderlies, who had been his body-servant, wept as he waited on us. Late at night the colonel, that first chief of ours, used to come home from GHQ, as all men call general headquarters with a sense of mystery, power, and inexplicable industry, accomplishing what in those initials? He came back with a cheery shout of, Fine weather tomorrow, or A starry night, and all's well, looking fine and soldierly, as the glare of his headlight shone on his tall figure with red tabs and a colored armlet. But that cheeriness covered secret worries. Night after night, in those early weeks of our service, he sat in his little office, talking earnestly with the press officers, our censors. They seemed to be arguing, debating, protesting about secret influences and hostilities surrounding us and them. I could only guess what it was all about. It all seemed to make no difference to me when I sat down before pieces of blank paper to get down some kind of picture, some kind of impression, of a long day in place where I had been scared a while because death was on the prowl in a noisy way, and I had seen it pounce on human bodies. I knew that tomorrow I was going to another little peep-show of war, where I should hear the same noises. That talk downstairs, that worry about some mystery at GHQ, would make no difference to the life or death of men, nor get rid of that coldness which came to me when men were being killed nearby. Why all that argument? It seemed the GHQ, mysterious people in a mysterious place, were drawing up rules for war correspondence and censorship, altering rules made the day before, formulating new rules for tomorrow, establishing precedents, writing minutes, initialing reports with pass to you or I agree written on the margin. The censors who lived with us and traveled with us and were our friends and read what we wrote before the ink was dry had to examine our screeds with microscopic eyes and with infinite remembrance of the thousand and one rules. Was it safe to mention the weather? Would that give any information to the enemy? Was it permissible to describe the smell of chloride of lime in the trenches? Or would that discourage recruiting? That description of the traffic on the roads of war, with transport weapons, gun limbers, lorries, mules, how did that conflict with the rule number 17A, or whatever it was, prohibiting all mention of movements of troops? One of the censors, working late at night, with lines of worry on his forehead, and little puckers about his eyes, turned to me with a queer laugh one night in the early days. He was an Indian civil servant, and therefore, by every rule, a gentleman and a charming fellow. You don't know what I'm risking in passing your dispatch. It's too good to spoil, but GHQ will probably find that it conveys accurate information to the enemy about the offensive in 1925. I shall get the sack, and oh, the difference to me. It appeared that GHQ was nervous of us. They suggested that our private letters should be tested for writing in invisible ink between the lines. They were afraid that, either deliberately or for some journalistic advantage, or in sheer ignorance as outsiders, we might hand information to the enemy about important secrets, belonging to the old cast of army mind, 
they believed that war was the special prerogative of professional soldiers of which politicians and people should have no knowledge therefore as civilians in khaki we were hardly better than spies the indian civil servant went for a stroll with me in the moonlight after a day up the line where young men were living and dying in dirty ditches i could see that he was worried even angry those people he said what people g h q oh lord i groaned again and looked across the fields of corn to the dark outline of a convent on the hill where young officers were learning the gentle art of killing by machine-guns before their turn came to be killed or crippled i thought of a dead boy i had seen that day or yesterday was it kneeling on the fire-step of a trench with his forehead against the parapet as though in prayer how sweet was the scent of the clover tonight and how that star twinkled above the low flashes of gunfire away there in the salient they want us to waste your time said the officer those are the very words used by the chief of intelligence in writing which i have kept waste their time i'll be damned if i consider my work is to waste the time of war correspondence don't those good fools see that this is not a professional adventure like their other little wars that the whole nation is in it that the nation demands to know what its men are doing they have a right to know chapter four just at first though not for long there was a touch of hostility against us among divisional and brigade staffs of the regulars but not of the new army they too suspected our motive in going to their quarters wondered why we should come spying around trying to see things i was faintly conscious of this one day in those early times when with the officer who had been the ruler in india i went to a brigade headquarters at the first division near vermeille it was not easy nor pleasant to get there though it was a summer day with fleecy clouds and a blue sky there was a long straight road leading to the village of vermeille with a criss-cross of communication trenches on one side and on the other fields where corn and grass grew rankly in abandoned fields some lean sheep were browsing there as though this was their arcady in times of peace it was not the red ruins of vermeille a mile or so away were sharply defined as through stereoscopic lenses in the quiver of sunlight and had the sinister look of a death-haunted place it was where the french had fought their way through gardens walls and houses in murderous battle before leaving it for british troops to hold across it now came the whine of shells and i saw that shrapnel bullets were kicking up the dust of a thousand yards down the straight road following a small body of brown men whose tramp of feet raised another cloud of dust like smoke they were the only representatives of human life besides ourselves in this loneliness though many men must have been hiding somewhere then heavy crumps burst in the fields where the sheep were browsing across the way we had to go to the brigade headquarters how about it asked the captain with me i don't like crossing that field in spite of the buttercups and daisies and the little frisky lambs i hate the idea of it i said then we looked down the road at the little body of brown men they were nearer now and i could see the face of the officer leading them a boy subaltern rather pale though the sun was hot he halted and saluted my companion the enemy seems to have sighted our dust sir his shrapnel is following up pretty closely would you advise me to put my men under cover or carry on the captain hesitated 
This was rather outside his sphere of influence. But the boyishness of the other officer asked for help. My advice is to put your men into that ditch and keep them there until the strafe is over. Some shrapnel bullets whipped the sun-baked road as he spoke. Very good, sir. The men sat in the ditch with their packs against the bank and wiped the sweat off their faces. They looked tired and dispirited, but not alarmed. In the fields behind them, our way, the 4.2s were busy plugging holes in the grass and flowers, rather deep holes, from which white smoke clouds rose after explosive noises. With a little careful strategy we might get through, said the captain. There's a general waiting for us, and I have noticed that generals are impatient fellows. Let's try our luck. We walked across the wild flowers, past the sheep, who only raised their heads in meek surprise when shells came with a shrill, intensifying snarl and burrowed up the earth about them. I noticed how loudly and sweetly the larks were singing up in the blue. Several horses lay dead, newly killed, with blood oozing about them, and their entrails smoking. We made a half-loop around them, and then struck straight for the chateau, which was the brigade headquarters. Neither of us spoke now. We were thoughtful, calculating the chance of getting to that red-brick house between the shells. It was just dependent on the coincidence of time and place. Three men jumped up from a ditch below a brown wall round the chateau garden and ran hard for the gateway. A shell had pitched quite close to them. One man laughed as though at a grotesque joke, and fell as he reached the courtyard. Smoke was rising from the outhouses, and there was a clatter of tiles and timbers after an explosive crash. "'It rather looks,' said my companion, "'as though the Germans knew there is a party on in that charming house.' It was as good to go on as to go back, and it was never good to go back before reaching one's objective. That was bad for the discipline of the courage that is just beyond fear. Two gunners were killed in the backyard of the chateau, and as we went through the gateway a sergeant made a quick jump for a barn as a shell burst somewhere close. As visitors we hesitated between two ways into the chateau, and chose the easier and it was then that I became dimly aware of hostility against me on the part of a number of officers in the front hall. The brigade staff was there, grouped under the banisters. I wondered why, and guessed, rightly as I found, that the center of the house might have a better chance of escape than the rooms on either side, in case of direct hits from those things falling outside. It was the brigade major who asked our business. He was a tall, handsome young man of something over thirty, with the arrogance of a Christchurch blood. Oh, he has come out to see something in Vermeille, a pleasant place for sightseeing. Meanwhile, the Hun is ranging on this house, so he may see more than he wants. He turned on his heel and rejoined his group. They all stared in my direction as though at a curious animal. A very young gentleman, the general's ADC, made a funny remark at my expense, and the others laughed. Then they ignored me, and I was glad, and made a little study in the psychology of men waiting a close call of death. I was perfectly conscious myself that in a moment or two some of us, perhaps all of us, might be in a pulp of mangled flesh beneath the ruins of a red-brick villa. The shells were crashing among the outhouses and in the courtyard, and the enemy was making good shooting, and the idea did not please me at all. At the back of my brain was fear. 
and there was a cold sweat in the palms of my hands. But I was master of myself, and I remember having a sense of satisfaction because I had answered the brigade major in a level voice with a touch of his own arrogance. I saw that these officers were afraid, that they too had fear at the back of the brain, and that their conversation and laughter were the camouflage of the soul. The face of the young ADC was flushed, and he laughed too much at his own jokes, and his laughter was just a tone too shrill. An officer came into the hall carrying two Mills bombs, new toys in those days, and the others fell back from him, and one said, "'For Christ's sake, don't bring them in here in the middle of bombardment.' "'Where's the general?' asked the newcomer. "'Down in the cellar with the other brigadier. They don't ask us down to tea, I notice.' Those last words caused all the officers to laugh, almost excessively, but their laughter ended sharply, and they listened intently, as there was a heavy crash outside. Another officer came up the steps and made a rapid entry into the hall. "'I understand there is to be a conference of battalion commanders,' he said, with a queer catch in his breath. "'In view of this, er, bombardment, I had better come in later, perhaps.' "'You had better wait,' said the brigade major, rather grimly. "'Oh, certainly.' A sergeant-major was pacing up and down in the passage by the back door. He was calm and stolid. I liked the look of him and found something comforting in his presence, so that I went to have a few words with him. "'How long is it likely to last, sergeant-major?' "'There's no saying, sir. They may be searching for the chateau to pass the time, so to speak, or they may go on till they get it. I'm sorry they caught those gunners. Nice lads, both of them.' He did not seem to be worrying about his own chance. Then suddenly there was silence. The German guns had switched off. I heard the lark singing through the open doorway, and all the little sounds of the summer day. The group of officers in the hall started chatting more quietly. There was no more need of finding jokes and laughter. They had been reprieved, and could be serious. "'We'd better get forward to Vermeille,' said my companion, and we walked away from the chateau. The brigade major passed us on his horse. He leaned over his saddle toward me and said, "'Good day to you, and I hope you will like Vermeil.' The words were civil, but there was an underlying meaning in them. "'I hope to do so, sir.' We walked down the long straight road toward the ruins of Vermeil, with a young soldier guide, who on the outskirts of the village remarked in a casual way, "'No one is allowed along this road in daylight as a rule.' It's under a observation of the enemy. Then why the devil did you come this way? asked my companion. I thought you might prefer the shortcut, sir. We explored the ruins of Vermeil, where many young Frenchmen had fallen in fighting through the walls and gardens. One could see the track of their strife in trampled bushes and broken walls, bits of red rag. The red pantaloons of the first French soldiers were still fastened to brambles and barbed wire broken rifles, cartouches, water-bottles, torn letters, twisted bayonets, and German stick-bombs littered the ditches which had been dug as trenches across the streets of burned-out houses. CHAPTER V A young gunner officer whom we met was very civil, and stopped in front of the Chateau of Vermeil, a big red villa with the outer walls still standing, and told us the story of its capture. It was a wild scrap. I was told all about it by a French sergeant who was in it. They were under the cover of that wall over there, about a hundred yards away, and fixing up a charge of high explosives to knock a breach in the wall. 
the chateau was a machine-gun fortress with the germans on the top floor the ground floor and in the basement protected by sandbags through which they fired a german officer made a bad mistake he opened the front door and came out with some of the machine-gunners from the ground floor to hold a trench across the square in front of the house instantly a french lieutenant called to his men they climbed over the wall and made a dash for the chateau bayoneting the germans who tried to stop them then they swarmed into the chateau a platoon of them with the lieutenant they were in the drawing-room quite an elegant place you know with the usual gilt furniture and long mirrors in one corner was a pedestal with a statue of venus standing on it rather charming i expect a few germans were killed in the room easily but upstairs there was a mob who fired down through the ceiling when they found what had happened the french soldiers prodded the ceiling with their bayonets and all the plaster broke falling on them a german fat and heavy fell halfway through the rafters and a bayonet was poked into him as he stuck there the whole ceiling gave way and the germans upstairs came downstairs in a heap they fought like wolves wild beasts with fear and rage french and germans clawed at one another's throats grabbed hold of noses rolled over each other the french sergeant told me he had his teeth into a german's neck the man was all over him pinning his arms trying to choke him it was the french lieutenant who did most damage he fired his last shot and smashed a german's face with his empty revolver then he caught hold of the marble venus by the legs and swung it above his head in the old berserker style and laid out germans like ninepins the fellows in the basement surrendered. End of section 1